And there's a couple different ways to get into brokerage at Marcus and Millichap. You can come in straight as an agent, which is a 100% commission type job. And you can come in as something called a sales intern. And the sales intern basically works underneath the senior agent, learns the business, helps the senior agent grow their business. And you can get your feet wet a little bit, especially being really young, right out of school and dealing with owners that have been in the business for a very long time. I'm Drew Brenneman, and this is the Rise and Invest podcast. I bought my first two properties as a 19-year-old with my own money that I earned from an online business I started in high school. I've now grown my portfolio from that first duplex to hundreds of millions of dollars of investment property. My goal with this show is to give you the resource I wanted when I first started out. Subscribe to our podcast where I break down real-life stories, tactics, strategies, and current market information you need to be a successful investor. All right, welcome back, everybody. Kyle Stengel's here today, Senior Managing Director at Marcus and Millichap with a focus on multifamily and mixed-use properties. He actually started out as an intern, and now he sold over a billion dollars as a broker. Welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. I've been looking forward to doing this episode for a while. Actually, last night, I looked up how many deals we've done together and 55 million across 12 deals. Wow. So, most with any, any broker, obviously. One thing that I've always been just, you know, kind of impressed by you, you know, a, a billion sold, but it wasn't like mega deal after mega deal. Most of the stuff I've seen you sell, it's been a lot of like two to $10 million deals. Obviously you've done bigger than that on, on some, but so it was, you know, a lot of, a lot of activity. So thanks. It's, you know, it's over your career, you kind of watch yourself grow, right? You start smaller and you, you form relationships and you build and you build with your clients you know, I've watched you grow in the asset classes you've been buying as well. So it's been a fun run. And one thing too, I mean, we've had other other brokers on the podcast, and I think we've talked quite a bit about apartments and brokerage. But so kind of today, we'd like to do something a little different. Where I remember we were I actually didn't didn't know this about you. We were golfing last year, and you had told me about how you almost quit, which is crazy to think, just given how things have gone. You know from the point you didn't quit till now. Right. So, I mean, I'd really be interested. I think a lot of people, whether they're in brokerage or any kind of sales, really any business would really benefit from hearing that story. So if you're cool with it, let's just start there. So how'd you get get started? How'd you get to here today? Sure. So taking it back, I'm from Ohio originally. I grew up in Toledo, Ohio, and went to Miami of Ohio for school. I graduated in 2005, and I was trying to figure out what to do in that senior year and which way I was going to go. I'd spent some time interning at companies, more of like a salary position, spent some time in Chicago, loved how vibrant it was, what I had to offer. Obviously, a big group of people move there every year and identified that I really wanted to be in Chicago. Then I had to figure out what I wanted to do. And as a senior in college, it's really hard to figure out where you're going to go and what your life's going to look like. We had to start somewhere. And I had always had an interest in, in real estate and I didn't know what to do in real estate, but a fraternity brother of mine had been working at Marcus and Millichap and was in real estate and was seeing success and was younger. And I talked to him about it and the manager of, he was actually in Columbus, Ohio, had moved from Columbus to Chicago and Chicago, you know, kind of lined up. I liked real estate and I liked Chicago. He introduced me to the manager there and made my way up Christmas break of my senior year to Chicago and interviewed nice. at Marcus and Milchap. So I ended up getting a job offer to go there. So I knew my second half of the senior year was set and yeah. I had something to do as soon as I graduated. And I had interviewed with the manager there as well as somebody who's still my partner today is Steve Rockman. Nice. 
And there's a couple different ways to get into brokerage at Marcus and Millichap. You can come in straight as an agent, which is a 100% commission type job. And you can come in as something called a sales intern. And the sales intern basically works underneath a senior agent, learns the business, helps the senior agent grow their business. And you can get your feet wet a little bit, especially being really young, right out of school and dealing with owners that right. have been in the business for a very long time. And a real big market here, like it's, it's very competitive. I mean, mm -hmm. just imagine it is everywhere, but I feel like it's, especially it is here. And a lot of the brokers are really good. What, so you started out as, as a straight commission or you went with the sales agent route or I went the sales agent route and there's kind of a funny story about that even so you know when you're looking at different positions and what to do there are the salaried routes and or there's a, a salaried type position that you might work in at a larger company so when I was interviewing and accepting the job I was talking to my parents about it and they said okay great you know you're, you're starting off you're going to Chicago that's really amazing and you know what does that job look like because I had actually received a job offer from the company I inter interned with. Nice. And coming out of school, I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, what, what was, where'd you intern? Because it wasn't real estate related. It wasn't real estate. It was a small town in Indiana, a company called Lippert Components. Oh, interesting. And there was a Miami connection. They were, did a lot of recruiting there. And I did it over the summer and then got a job offer. And when I was coming out of school, people were making between forty dollars and $50,000. It was kind right. of a starting salary range. And I think it was an offer for 45000 But I'd be living in Goshen, Indiana. And doing that, it wasn't quite what I was looking for. Right. So what were, what were you, what did your parents do for work? So my, my dad was in the real estate or in the, he was partially in the real estate business, but really started in the car business. So we had a car family car dealership Oh, nice. and my mom worked at a hospital. And so what was their mentality then? I think you're starting to get to it. So then you're going to take this a hundred percent commission job. Right. I know what my parents would say this, you know, they're, they're very supportive, but they, they're also really risk averse. Right. So they would be fine with the decision, but they they would be they would basically probably explain this is not what we would do, you know, like this. Absolutely. Risky. So, you know, they were when I went to tell them what we were what I was going to do, I had a couple of different options and I was saying, well, I'm going to, you know, start this job. I'm going to decide I want to go to Chicago. I said, great. You know, how's the, the pay? How's the salary? I'm like, well, it's twenty five thousand to start and it's going to go to zero in a year and a half because I'm become a hundred percent commission. Right. Oh, benefits? No. Is it retirement? No. Do you, you know all the twenty five. But there's great opportunity in the future. But right? then you have to pay the twenty five back. Or you not? don't. Okay, not not as program. Okay. The less it's basically you get paid a little bit to help, and you can also earn some partial commissions depending on what you're doing. So that's what ended up working out. But but they believed in me, and they said, you know, you, you know what you want to do, and they are 100 percent supportive, and that's one of the pieces of where I am today is because of support I had from them. Right. Nice. So then what, what came next? So then you started in Chicago. I moved to Chicago, started as a sales intern working for Steve. And that was an 18 month program. <clears throat> and he threw me right into the mix, which was great. He brought me in on every meeting, every phone call. I actually sat in his office, had a desk in his office for, for oh, many really? times and listened to him talking about his deals. He actually had me out prospecting as soon as I got licensed, it was a couple months later. I think this would be interesting to hear. And so prospecting, like what exactly did, did that look like? Sure. So he had a lot of really good clients that he was working with at the time, uh, but had formed, built a database of apartment buildings on the north side. And it was primarily Edgewater and Rogers Park. And he had, we had a database that we'd go through and prospecting is really phone calls out to the market. And at that time it was a condo boom, right? And we were calling owners to see if they wanted to sell. And then we'd sell it to 
condo converter, but it was just, do you want to sell? This is what just recently sold. This, these are the values that we're seeing increasing and phone call after phone call. And then after I'd hang up, he'd say, how do you think that went? You know, what did you say? Right. What did you say wrong? And that one-on-one -on -one attention was phenomenal, you know, my development of, you know, becoming an agent. And then you guys were in the same room. That's really interesting. Then he's, here's what you're saying. And wow. Okay. I never, so that was a benefit coaching. Nice. Cause I did hear, I think maybe then for database and you, I mean, you told me more or less you walked down every street at some point and were writing down addresses and. Absolutely. Like yep. So, so what happened is that was an 18 month program. And then January, 2007, I became a full-time agent and I still worked and partnered with Steve. So you, you still have a mentor as you continue on, but you're not assisting the senior with their business. So I had to identify a market that was going to be essentially mine to figure out and master and, and move forward. I lived in Lincoln Park, I lived at Sheffield and Armitage, and I'm walking around the streets. My girlfriend at the time, now, now wife, lived on the east side of Lincoln Park, and you know we'd spend our time. So I thought it'd be easiest to pick a market that I'm in all the time. And after work at five o'clock, and it was the summertime, you know, we'd go walk the streets, and I would have my camera with me and just take pictures of any building that I thought we could sell. Right. And I had a printout on Google, and I had a highlighter, and literally went down every street that as we went, I've, I have a, still have a picture of every building that we'd sell wow. in Lincoln Park, Lakeview, Bucktown, Wicker Park, Old Town. And it's fun, and this, and with an actual camera. With an actual camera, yeah. and it had a voice recording. So I'd take a picture, oh, nice. and it would record a clip for like five seconds. I'd say, one, two, three, you know, 1233 oh. North Point, whatever that address is, and I would just take a picture of it. And then I would come back to my computer, and I could play the clip, and then I'd name the picture Nice. And I still haven't great. been able to find a camera that does that. Nice. That's great. Maybe with the iPhone, you take a live photo and then a few. There you go. It's got to say it really fast, though. So nice. I remember hearing that and was impressed where, you know, it seems so, so easy if you, you know, once you meet someone who's, you know, it's already working for them, but they don't hear about the part where you're, you know, getting hung up on and, and then walking, you know, down the street taking pictures. Yeah, it was, you know, it's a it's something you got to do and you really learn, you see signs of, of for lease or you see somebody doing some masonry work and you really get a good feel and for the market. So when you're calling, that was the toughest thing when you're starting off as a young agent, what value are you giving to somebody who's been in the business for so long? Right. Right. So you got to figure something. I don't have the experience of owning or operating properties at that point. So what I tried to do is become a market expert. So I did rental survey after rental survey. Every time a property sold, I talked to the owner, buyer, seller, and really try to get an understanding of what's going on. Interesting. So when we go to these meetings and you're sitting with somebody across, you know, obviously they're going to look at the senior agent primarily. And throughout, by the end of the meeting, you want them looking and talking to you, right? As a younger agent, because you're going to give them something. And that's what I still harp on everybody is you really, you need to know your market very, very well. And early on, your, the edge you were trying to provide was you had rent data rent so. and sale and market data and tenants moving in or moving out and and then that that obviously worked or that was more that was worked somewhat well or how'd that go in terms of the, actually providing that info that gets you in the door and it gets you talking to people and when you're active on the phones and you're in the middle of opportunities then you start connecting with certain people certain clients or, or whatever that might be and it kind of reminds, so when I was doing the sales intern, just to take one step back, I was doing the sales intern program. And when I launched, I had saved up $12,000 throughout this process through some extra commissions I had made while I was working for Steve. And at the time I knew it cost me $2,000 a month to live. 
right? So I had six month runway yeah. to basically survive before I could, you know, I'd run out of money. So I was doing what I was telling you about, trying to be a market expert, ended up securing a listing, actually two listings right after the first of the year. One was a FedEx on Fullerton. It was owned by an owner that was going to be selling it. And then the other one was a bar called Matisse on Diversity. Okay, nice. And the first one never happened. The, 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 the FedEx, the owner decided to keep it. We didn't hit a price. The second one, there was an exclusion in there. So for 30 days, there was one buyer that the owner had known very well and excluded them. So, but we went under contract with the buyer. Something happened where it didn't end up moving forward. And the seller of that property ended up signing the contract with the exclusion. However, it was about five days after our exclusion burned off. Oh, wow. So just to give you a real a little timeline here, I'm getting to about May when this is happening. Okay. So I'm getting right to the end of my rope. This is like month five or six of the... Of the six month. Okay. When do I have? And the, the owner sent the contract over. I noticed a discrepancy or that it was five days past. And I went in and talked to Steve and I said, you know, we're technically do a fee here. And I said, but this owner's been very straightforward with us, has always helped. I don't know that this is the right thing to do. And Steve 100% agreed. He said, no, it's not. You got to have a long-term view. You got to treat people right. And we sent an email to the owner and was like, you know, you don't owe us anything because you had good intentions this whole time. Very, very appreciative, obviously. And yeah. said, well, I'll never forget this. This will pay off. Wow. And very hard to do at that time, yeah. right? When No, where you needed the money. I needed the money. So life went on. A month went by. had not closed anything. I ran out of money. That was kind of one, the first point. I was like, oh boy, what and am then, I going to do? And this is in 2007? 2007. And so I called my parents and I said, I've run out of money. And can you help me? And no question. They said, no problem. How much do you need? And, you know, it's a sacrifice for them too. So it's not like there's, they're sending me a bunch of money. So they lent me $12,000. They said, well, you know, another year, so you can get to a whole year. And I said, great, I'm going to appreciate it. And I'm going to pay you back. I knew I had another six month runway. And not shortly after that, I hit a, a couple more listings and ended up selling, you know, two of them where I made a few, do, a few money to last a bit longer. And fast forward, just to give you, to connect back on this, uh, the Matisse deal that I had listed, that owner called me about six months later and listed a $3.6 million deal with me. Wow. And, and he said, you don't have to compete for it. This is your deal. And gave me a healthy fee, ended up selling it and made, you know, five times what I would have made wow. if I would have. So to your original question is... Did that work? Well, that's how I got in front of them. And then you treat people right and, and you have enough of a time horizon. It kind of comes all back around. So you started with really long-term thinking from the get-go. Right. And then that, was that just naturally how you were? Or was that coming from Steve or what? I think you, I think we're a good team. I think we have like, like mine thoughts and, you know, I don't want to treat somebody wrong. Right. And I have a long-term view and I knew I wanted to be in this business for a long time. And Steve has grown, you know, he was obviously much older, but he has the same philosophies. Right. But something that I think is interesting too, where like Steve, he was a well-known broker, but he wasn't like the top person in the market. So it's not like you're just bringing it, this guy with, that's just getting all the listings every time where he was super helpful with mentoring. But a lot of this year, I mean, I would imagine you, this, you get the listing, you feel like you're mostly getting it on your, you know, on your merit, mm -hmm. I would think. He had a, a time period where he was in, he was a trader, and then he got into real estate and has life experience, has business experience, 
and as he says, gray hair. Yeah, so. and he's really likable, but I think that's almost worth pointing out, though, where, I mean, you had someone who was mentoring and helping you, but it wasn't like we, you know, you're bringing the number one power broker with, right. and, like, everything's just, it's, like, over at that point. Like, this was really you guys doing this together, mm-hmm. uh, and that's that's a great learning lesson about thinking long-term. I mean, I've always thought that way, too, but that's it's interesting to hear that, where that just paid off so quickly as well. It didn't feel like it paid off quickly, those <laughs> six months, but that's fast. It's funny when you start looking back, when you're just coming out of school and you look at that first year or three years or five years, it seems so long. And how do I get from zero to, you know, one, 10, 50, whatever it's going to be down the road. And it looks so far. And I always just say, you look at it step by step. You set the one goal that's reachable. You know, it's reachable. When you hit that, you're going to set the next. And that can apply obviously to anything, you know, in your life or you know, how many buildings you want to own or what you want your net worth or how many friends, you know, whatever it might be, you can apply it to many different things. And if you break it down, if it's a, if you look at it as a whole, it can be overwhelming. If you break it down into steps, it becomes much more manageable. Right. Or if you're thinking just about one deal at a time or just doing mm-hmm. the process and then you look back, you're like, well, I can't believe I mean, that's happened to me. I'm surprised how much property we have. If I would have, someone would have said when I bought my first duplex, like, what do you think you could get to maybe in total? I would have said a number that would have been smaller than like what we can buy in a year now. Right. Like it's totally weird. But I just think about doing the deals. I mean, similar to you, just for think about have a listing, let's do a good job for this client. And mm-hmm. then it just kind of keeps snowballing. Yeah. But that's really, that's, that's great. I think also too, it's interesting where it's, it, and this is something that I share and I really obvious to me hearing your story with the dollar amounts. Like it's, it's really great to take risks when you're young. It's really, you know, a lot of times you get, it would be really hard to do this if you were in your 40s. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't need to say how long 12 grand would last now. We <laughs> both have kids. Like, it wouldn't, wouldn't, go, for, wouldn't go for six months anymore. You no, know, that's for right. sure. But that, that's great because you're able to bet on yourself when it was, you know, a, a good time to do it. And then, you know, from like a cost of living standpoint, it was a great time to take a risk too. Absolutely. And, you, and I think it was nice. I had people around me that supported me. So started dating my wife right after college girlfriend obviously at the time and got, and got engaged and then got married but she was always 100% supportive of me as well she had a really good job as, which helped so you know I knew even before we were married you know that she was she was there supportive and and had some consistency because I was obviously very inconsistent and uh, you know having that whether it's a girlfriend a wife a, you know, whoever it might be a family member a friend there to support you and keep you pushing keep you positive is a key component to this whole thing because if you have negativity on one side it's going to pull you out. I've seen it over and over. That's interesting. And so then, I mean, this whole time then, I mean, so because in, in 2007, you guys were dating. We were dating. So we started dating in 2005. And in, in 2007, we were, we were dating as well. So actually, one of the stories in 2007, as I'm kind of coming out of this, right, and we, there was a lady that owned a building on Lincoln Avenue, 20, where Halligan's Bar is in the 2200 block. And I was just cold calling. I had probably just walked down the street and taken a picture of the building. And I called her and she lives in over, lived over in Indiana. She said, uh, you know, it's funny you call. I'm going to be selling my property. My husband has passed away. I'm going to be moving to Arizona and I want to buy something else. And I said, oh my gosh, this is great. So I called, you know, Steve, we drove to and met her at a Quaker, one of those uh, restaurants, Quaker Steak or something oh, okay, out yeah, in, in Indiana. And she said, well, if you get me, you know, $3.3 million, I'll sell it. So at the time I had sold a few buildings to Tim Glasscott. And Kyle Glasscott and I called Tim and I said, Kitty Menconi will not list the property. 
but she wants to sell it for $3.3 million. And he said, when can you get me in? So we, we got in a couple of days later, toured the property. Actually, Kitty and Tim kind of you know, hit it off. He you know, got along with her very well and signed up that deal, long story short. But I remember negotiating the fee in, in the car. I was driving my wife's car. The air conditioning had just broken. It was the middle of the summer, or it was like late summer. And I was negotiating a fee with Tim Glasgow, and I didn't have any heat, and it was sweaty. And I'm thinking, this is working out perfect right, because yeah. he must think that I can't yeah. have anything. And, you know, he's buying a really nice building. In the end, he got a great building, a really good deal, and it worked out well for everybody. But that deal is the deal that I used the money to buy an engagement ring for my wife. Oh, wow. So we got nice. engaged in January uh, of 2008. Nice. And what, uh, I mean, that's really I mean, great how that all lined up. And then how did you already know Tim just from work you had put in before? The deals just before that is one that I closed with him nice. and Kyle at 908 South Loomis. Yep. Tim's got a great story. I haven't met him. Obviously, I've met Kyle. But I mean, where Tim was buying duplexes and these neighborhoods are now they're worth 800000 a million dollars. And he's buying them for, you know, 30 to 50 grand when yeah. they, uh, back in the day. So. That's uh, that's great. I'm sure having a broken air conditioner helped. With it was. You know, you can need to get some money over here for this, get a, this car fixed. Yep. Nice. Well, great. And I had, I mean, no, you had told me actually at one point you were thinking about even, you know, leaving brokerage and mm -hmm. switching to do what your girlfriend was doing. That was all this 2007 year. That's actually after that. So it's interesting. The, the business goes up and down right. over time. And, and the goal as a broker is always to get that up and down consistent on a trajectory upwards till till you're satisfied, I guess. And you may never be satisfied or you may, but try to get rid of those ups and downs. So what happened was 2007 happened, ended up closing that deal on Lincoln Avenue. And then 2008 was actually really good for the first half. So we, one after another deal kind of kept coming. The market was still going before obviously the, the great financial crisis right. hit. And it wasn't, it wasn't till late 2008 to 2009 where it felt like everything had stopped. And thankfully I had still, I had made enough money in that 2008 to feel comfortable. My fiance at the time, I still had the really good job and I watched that business grow and, and I thought, wow, this is kind of nice. It's a bit more consistent. It seems like they're making, you know, really good money at a young age and there's growth opportunity. Now, obviously not the same as being in real estate, but you have to kind of decide what your goals are and what you want. More of a traditional, more like traditional. salary plus bonus mm -hmm. type thing. But, exactly. Right. But you're seeing this in 2008, nine, when there's not any activity. And right. And I, I still was able to survive. That wasn't the thing. It was more like, how long is this going to last? And what does this ramp up look like? So I still remember the day or general timeline, I guess. On, I was in the office. You know, I was just taking a break and I was walking down the hall and I'm thinking, man, this is really, this is not fun. Right. And this is just as bad as it gets. I think I had a couple deals fall apart at the time. All kind of came crashing at the same time. Right. And then I thought to myself, well, if it's this bad, there's only one way to go. And that's up from here. Forget that. And I literally just was like, okay, I'm just going to stick it out. And Jackie, my wife said, just push through it. You know, you like this, you love this business and we're fine. Just stick it out. So I said, all right. So I did. And then, you know, we made it into 10 through 10 and, you know, got some deals closed and things like that. And then 11, it started turning and it's kind of back to treating people right, finding people that you work really well with and people you can grow with. And if you even, if you look at my clients then, and over those next couple of years, they're still clients today and we've grown together and we've done a lot of business and it's a, the brokerage business is a combination of repeat clients and new clients 
right? And referrals right. are really kind of the three pods that I work with. And uh, the, the core of the base is the those clients. Nice. And that what, I mean, so then 2009 and 10, I mean, it's basically like no deals or a couple deals close was really, really, really slow. And I went back and looked, you know, before the, the, the podcast, cause I wanted to kind of see what it looked like. And 2008 was really good. The first half and I only closed one deal in the second half of the year. 2009 was a handful. 2010 was actually double 2009. A lot of smaller right. stuff though, but probably distressed, you know, we're finally selling them out of right. foreclosure and things like that. And then 2011 was about double 2010 and then 2012 was about three times. Wow. So really 2012 was where the, the, it just really took off. And what time did some of these clients that were, became the bigger ones, at what point did you, did you meet them? How did those relationships start? Those relationships really began because of the, the downturn. Many of them did because many of them bought a lot of distressed properties. They had access to equity. They had a, a plan, they had a fund, something like that. They had investors and they can get really good opportunities when there's distressed and, you know, it's distressing right. the market. Yeah. And the people I'm thinking of, they understood construction, they had a big track record. So then lending relationships. So then you come with a bank owned property and then this is yep. a huge opportunity because a lot of the stuff that you were selling in those years, call it 2009 through 10, 11, mm -hmm. was that, was that even making it on the market or? What was, how were those transactions usually going down? A combination of them. There was, I would say it's probably half of them were from a bank and the other half were probably listed, probably half and half. So they just, they did make it to market. Actually got one of my best clients and friends from a distressed deal. So I didn't even tell you, I was going to tell the story, but it's a, one I really enjoy. So there was a scattered site, broken condo deals. And I was talking to a bank that was based out of Wisconsin. And I called them and actually, I think I'd sold a couple of properties for him prior and gave me this list of these properties. And I started looking at them and I said, I recognize these addresses. And I recognize the name of the person that owned the other units in the building. Had already bought some different banks, owned different condos. I have no idea how the developer ended up doing that, but they did. And so I called the, the owner of the property that owned the other condos. And I said, hey, I have these pool of condos that are bank owned now. Do you have any interest in them? And he said, absolutely, I have interest. So <clears throat> I started calling this banker, banker over and over. And he was not calling me back and not calling me back. And <clears throat> I called the, the ultimate buyer and I said, this guy's not calling me back. You know, I want to make this deal and I'm going to go show up in his door tomorrow. So on Friday morning, I got up at 6 a.m. and I got my car and I drove to the bank. And I said, I have this buyer. Here's an offer. Here's a check non-contingent and you know will you sell it to him and way up i called the buyer and i said can you give me 50 grand in my pocket to make this deal happen right and he said sure so long story short i showed up there the guys couldn't believe that i showed up at his door and i ended up getting the deal done he paid 50 grand more it was kind of a you know negotiating piece and 50 grand in your pocket that meant you have fifty thousand of room in the price in the price okay. room in the price got it at first i was this commission or something, but you got it. That makes yep. total sense. And got the deal done, closed it, forever have that client now for the effort that you put into yeah. it and going above and beyond. And then got to then sell it again after you assembled the whole building. And then I'm sure, I'm sure that banker was impressed. You showed up. And the banker was happy. Everybody won. Right. And this was before people were doing non-contingent deals. Right. So that's, that's impressive. That's a cool story.
what any other stories like that jump out. I mean, that's a really like deal story. So I know I think nothing where I drove to Wisconsin or anything yeah. like that, but I think just going above and beyond is a key point. And, and I think, you know, working hard and providing opportunities and deals. When, when we had the downturn, we were selling a lot of bank distress stuff. The nice thing as a broker as well is that usually you're selling to somebody who's using other people's money, right? Investing because they're going to then end up selling it, right? If you sell it to somebody who's using their own and they have a long-term hold, it's never going to sell again. In the distress time, it seemed like there were a lot of funds that were established that had a certain time horizon, right? So you, but many times we had sold a building and then years later when the market recovered, you go, you sell it again and then sell it again sometimes. What's the most you've sold the same building? Three. Nice. So we're trying for four right now. Great. There's one thing I've noticed looking more in Phoenix, there's a, there's a lot more of a just transactional market and there's right. stuff where I feel like these guys have sold it like five or six times where it's or you'll be touring it and then they'll say like last time I sold it you yep. know which is not something I hear in, in Chicago a lot there's a lot more just people would take these buildings down and just sit on them for feels like forever right so well nice and then what's something along the way then I guess at this point you can look back and I, I know you have a team so we'll get into that but right. that you think that you've been doing that you know really really helped you or maybe you didn't think at the time or you didn't you know, at the time, like this is really helping. Obviously, you said long-term thinking was one, right. going above and beyond. What are some other things? I think consistency is a key thing. Following through with what you're going to say. And as a broker, when you're starting off, there's metrics you look at, cold calls or phone calls outbound, number of proposals, number of listings, and obviously it goes from there. But consistently calling, consistently branding yourself, consistently being in front of owners, consistently updating your information, I mean, if you let one of those slip, then you're going to have a gap in your in your business and the value that you're creating for people. So I think consistency is very important, as we've talked about long-term thinking and being honest, straightforward. And the other thing is having the proper mentor and, and sticking with that mentor probably longer than you think you should, because, you know, many times you start to think you can do stuff on your own. And, you know, part of something is better than all or nothing is kind of the mentality that I've always had. And I think that just committing committing to a business you like and having a mentor that, that can spend time with you and teach you the right way to do it is absolutely critical. And I mean, one thing I've, I've noticed just working with you, like you have really high attention to detail and aren't in like a big rush. Mm -hmm. It doesn't feel like that. And I know we did, you were nice enough to take that traits test that we use for our employees. And it was, it was interesting where it wasn't, you know, you think with a, a maybe a broker, like their number one trait is going to be either being, being social or just like, self-motivated driver, whatever. Mm -hmm. But and a couple other people took that that were sort of top performers, either brokers or similar stuff. And it was, was a similar result where so mm -hmm. you also naturally like have been are very detailed. And that's obvious when you send something, it's every time it's polished and it's just not, not like halfway done, mm -hmm. which that, which, you know, with brokerage, it's a lot of, it's a big sales element. And I know a lot of actually people that have, that have worked for me where they're, surprised by some of the brokers where they're like, this isn't more polished or they're explaining that this is how it'll work, but we know it's not how it'll go. Like, what's the deal with this, these guys? And I say, well, you know, some of them, it's just, it's a sales role. They're mm -hmm. wasting time figuring out the utilities to some of them. So they're not, they might not where that's one thing that I've, but with your stuff and us, it's always really, really polished and really detailed. So I don't know if anyone's ever. No, that's, I appreciate that. that. <clears throat> and I do try to pay attention to it. And you know, part of my sales is knowing the details, right? And understanding and giving an explanation as to why the deal makes sense, why it should operate this way. And instead of saying, 
this is a great deal. Look how shiny and new it is. And you should definitely buy it. And it's going to be worth more in the future. Well, why? Right. You want to tell me about the deal. Tell me what maybe some of the hurdles are going to be, but tell me about the opportunities and why it's better than the hurdle. You know, you're going to get over the hurdles. Right. And that's been kind of my approach. And if I can't explain why something's valuable to somebody, it's not, not everybody's doing that. And if you work, let's say, so the people I'm referring to that work for me is more, is like an analyst or somebody. Mm-hmm. So obviously they're going to be logical and detailed as right. well. And so then if you're just getting a lot of hype, they're like, well, this isn't, it's not like doing it for them. But then they, so no one's ever said that, of you know, about you or like, well, you send it out with these things that price makes no sense or, you know, it doesn't, I don't, I don't get it, mm-hmm. you know, where you're explaining it in a logical way, which then at least resonates with, and that's, that's in large part how I am too. So then mm-hmm. like the way you would explain it is how I'd want to hear it. So maybe that's why we've done that's it. We've 12 deals. Download our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook today at riseinvest.com slash downloads. Accredited investors can sign up for our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. Now back to the show. But nice. So then, okay, let's maybe go back a little bit then. So 2013, what, I guess let's, Go from then till till now today. So what? So twenty. So once you start, I basically end up taking a little bit of a transition from being a junior broker, if you will, to starting to transition into becoming more of a senior broker. And that that part, in my opinion, is best where you run yourself and establish your business, kind of build your foundation, or establish who you are. Then you can start to add on either other junior brokers and start teaching the business, or you can start on staff. And where, you know, where does that begin? And I decided to hire on somebody that was kind of a catch-all. They helped me with underwriting, they helped me with escrow, and they helped me with marketing. And that was probably the best decision I had made at that point within my business. What year is this? This is 2011, end of 2011. So in 2011, just as an independent broker, you took on one employee one to employee. do these things. Mm-hmm. Started as part time, and then we ended up, you know, moving into a full time employee and stuff like that. So it's it's just you got to invest back in your business, and right. I know you do a great job in doing that too, and in having you know good people around you and helping you grow. So, right. So I I hired somebody, and saw the immediate result the next year, and that's partially because of the market and the time of the business. But I guarantee that that having that employee was also part of the trajectory. I mean, if you think about it, one I mean one deal, I guess, or you know, a couple for sure. You didn't pay for that person and mm-hmm. all the time you have freed up where like that, I can see a big payoff on that. And then a lot of this year, cause you're now you have way more time to do the real things that are going to produce, you know, a lot of, a lot of revenue for you guys. Right. The valuable right. activities yeah. that produce much, much higher. And that is another, you know, point in your career as a broker is to, do I take another risk and yeah. hire on somebody, both the risk for you and for the person that you're hiring, or you start having responsibility that, that person's counting on you too. Yep. So you got to produce not only for yourself, but for them. That's, so and that's earlier than I thought you were going to say. I thought you were going to say like 2014, actually. Mm-hmm. I didn't, that's because that you, you're coming off some really lean years and then you're seeing a result and you basically reinvested right away yep. at that time. That was the, the lean years. Thankfully, I was still able, I made more than it cost me to live. So that was good. I wasn't, I wasn't starting to dig, I wasn't digging myself out of a hole. So, but that was in the manager at the time really encouraged it. And so we did it. So then let's say then till 2013 till now, what? Yep. So that one, so over time, basically I had the, the age, I had a staff member that had worked with me and then it was time to add on a junior agent and junior agent. It's always tough because you have to commit to them because it's another person that's counting on you. 
to help them grow their career and to grow their business, learn the business and make sure they're off in the right direction. And, you know, there's always growing pains with building a team and figuring out who's the right fit and if they're going to make it in the business or if they're not going to make it in the business and, and that kind of thing. So, yeah, and, and you're spending time. So you got to make sure you're spending time with somebody who's want, as committed as you are. And we, Rockman, who had mentored me, had took, taken a, a few years in management and then had come back into the sales force. And when that had happened, then he's really good at mentoring, as I'd mentioned obviously several times in this. He took on that role and his role is to help mentor and teach the team nice. on, on, on growing those agents. And he was running one of the offices. He was right? running the O'Hare he, office. So he took a step back from being a, a sales producer and then went to being a management of an office. Right. And then his next move was then he joined your team. He did. Yep. So they ended up expanding the Oak Brook in the downtown office. And so he came back to sales downtown and, and joined the team. Nice. So yeah. then what, what was the experience like then bringing on your first agent? How did you refer to him? It was a, ju a junior agent or an agent. It was, it was certainly a learning experience and you have to, you have to find a market where it's always interesting. You have to find a market where they would, where they're going to be able to generate business today. And as they grow, are going to be able to expand and, and create a career for themselves. So you're, you're talking about today, but you also have to look five years down the road and, and see how that intertwines with your business and how there's nice synergies and things like that. And what was, I had not mentioned earlier is when I was starting in Lincoln Park and Lakeview and doing that, there was a very senior agent that was retiring from oh, Marcus nice. at the time. His name was Don Wenzel or is Don Wenzel. And he was on his way into retirement. I was just starting. So that field was open, nice. which was nice That's to kind of grow into that. <clears throat> and I still think about that today and how in a junior agent that joins can grow over time. So, you know, there was along the way, there's certain, you know, agents that didn't make it and for one reason or another, but you know, it's, it was a learning experience on time commitment and direction to give them and, and, and helping push them. And there's certain, there's certain agents, what you realize that have it and understand it and have the drive and others that think they do, but don't really act on it. That's interesting. I did a reference call for someone who works here. And I'll just say for, for Sam Markin, and it was with Mike Brennan, who for UW-Madison, like he's like a, there's a ton for the program and his company, they have billions of dollars of industrial doing the reference call, asking like normal questions. And then he just interrupted and was like, Drew, some people have it, some don't, Sam's got it. <laughs> and, and then he's like, I'd hire him, but I just hired someone who's the same age as him. Yep. I was like, all right. Then I started asking Mike questions about his business. And I'm like, I got him on the phone. Let me <laughs> learn from this guy who's a billions ahead of me in property here. So I know what you mean. And then Sam's, Sam's got it. So. And you see it and you know, you're like, wow, they, they have it. And then you just want them to capitalize on it and grow. So have sir, but then I'm sure you've learned a ton then in terms of now you have to explain things, which mm -hmm. makes you understand them better yep. from my experience. What's some other stuff maybe that then you learn from, from uh, mentoring others? I mean, you, you realize that there's a lot of different personalities and driving factors of people and not everybody thinks the exact same way as you. And you learn how to figure out people's positives and, and, and maybe that's your negative and you can try to compliment them to grow the business and be better. The other thing I, I realized over time is that, you know, you really, the more you give to somebody or the, the more you commit and the more fair you are, the more it pays off back Interesting. in nice. the, in the end. So 
you know, it's very easy to try to say, these are my, this is mine and let me have it, right? Instead of just playing nicer in the sandbox and saying, let's all kind of share and just take this team together to, to grow. And so what would be in, a, in that, like a... Here's a really a simple example is going to be the database, right? So there's, everybody can build their own databases or you can have a database together and let everybody call in it in their certain markets, but see conversations and kind of help each other out. And the other thing that I've, that we do now is if there's a, a buyer in the market, obviously if it's a really good relationship and you're talking all the time, then you, they're going to work with that particular agent. But if there's somebody who's, you know, looking in multiple different markets and you know them and another agent brings it, then great. Let's just, let's get another deal done. It's not a territorial thing. Like I know that person, so I'm going to work with them, not you. Right. So then right. you'd work on it together? Work on it together. And then this, the database, what do you guys have that saved in? Apto. But then it's not like you have one account, the other brokers do. It's now we're just, you're just all working in one right. thing. And Apto is a CRM. It's a CRM. Yeah, it's like a Salesforce based. Yeah. We, we ended up actually signing up for the full blown Salesforce because they, they can put everything on a map. Yeah. So, which I know I, I, I don't believe Apto had, but that was why we went with that. So we have deals we've been pursuing off market just been mapped out mm-hmm. so it's because then you can search by owner or you can just go on the map and then see like what else around there have we called on or what's what's there so that's nice another thing sam's been building out right. so it's good well nice that because i've i've learned a lot just in terms of having like people work for me because you need to explain things that maybe before you never really thought about like what are you actually doing how could you explain this to somebody mm-hmm. and then two i've i've learned it's been surprising, but where you wouldn't think you'd be doing this, but where just yeah, how to how to talk to people where like so naturally, and I don't know where this came from. I was like I just always thought I could do it. Like I never was worried like that I couldn't do something, mm-hmm. and I'm still not. But there are you know, let's say this is an example. Like if someone just thinks, well, let's say they start here, they're not they're not confident about due diligence or just or something. But you can you can build them up with just how you're just talking about what they're doing, mm-hmm. you know, telling them they did get a good job or explaining, you know, just where before I'd never had thought that's going to be, I don't know, part of something like this where you would like on TV, it's more people like, you know, like yelling or explaining how they didn't do a good job. Right. Or where it's actually, it's the opposite where they say they're weak at this and then you, you know, you can improve that or explain, or if you don't think they're actually weak at it, like tell them that, mm-hmm. you know, so it's been interesting where, you know, I've just learned so much about communication in the last whatever, 15 years, that that's, that's probably like a surprising takeaway for me at this point where that you can hear someone say like that and then you as an experienced broker, you know, well, actually they're not doing a bad job on the phones. They just feel like it because this is a business where, you know, you got to make hundreds of calls to get one meeting and then they need to hear that mm-hmm. where you would have, you know, where whatever on TV, it's like, no, you yell at them, like make 500 more calls, you know, yeah. and like, it's, so it's, that's one thing that I found is, is is interesting where you're thinking about, you know, getting people's confidence up and just different things that I would have never thought I'd be, I guess, thinking about as like a manager. And, and just making people feel appreciated when they are. I mean, because sometimes it's easy just to go through the days and go through the weeks when you do appreciate them. And that is, that's a good way to say it. And that's a big part of what I was getting at. And mm-hmm. uh, the, one of my, one of my partners, you know, I said something nice for I said something about how I appreciated something to him the other other day and he was like he had told me like that meant a lot actually so it's nice that to be able to communicate like that and you know when you're whatever in your 20s you don't you don't know how to do that even but the other thing i've been doing recently is keeping an open mind on ideas too because 
I'm not as young as I used to be, you know, time flies, but there's different ideas and thoughts and perspective that could make sense that, yeah. that come out of, you know, somebody that's maybe newer out of school. Right. So that's a good idea. Many of much of it's technology based and things like that, but anything that they have, I yeah. keep an open mind, listen to going to get the team on TikTok or yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Instagram Yeah, for that. I know all well, these people killing it doing that. What, well, what do you think? So then let's maybe what's more, what was your strategy? Let's say with building the team. Cause you could have just kept being you could just stay as one broker and then you could have added more support employees where you could have i mean i know you did but where you get the marketing person the yeah. transaction coordinator you could have just built it all around around you and then you're not spending time training and mm -hmm. everything else that's what it works out really nicely with steve and i like kind of the yin and yang is that i have a the client base that i tend to work with and a lot of production and you know bringing in new business and new listings and things like that and behind the scenes, we have we have a marketing person, Liz, who's been with us for years, and she's amazing. And you know, we appreciate everything she does. So it's been really great. She actually works remotely out of Pennsylvania, closer to family, and it's worked out great. And COVID, it was right before COVID, believe it or not. So we've, we've got that, and then we have financial analysts. And the next piece to add is going to be transaction coordinator. And that is basically just taking a lot of the responsibility off of the brokers that are going to go out there and, and produce and investing in the back office like that. They're a critical piece and they also help the team grow. And Steve does a lot of the mentorship of the brokers, of the brokers. So, and, and services as clients as well. So that's kind of what the structure of our, our team looks like. And then the goal of where the team is going to be is we don't want to grow too many people too fast. You know, we are, we're at a, a point where, you know, it makes sense. And, you know, the, the perfect brokerage team, in my opinion, has three back office staff and has, you know, a couple two-year agents, a couple three to seven-year agents, and a couple senior, you know, the, the right. 10 plus, if you will, right? Because then you get a kind of a nice, you know, people filling every piece of their role and, and adding to the team. And, the key to a successful team that I've realized over time is that you gotta you gotta teach, you gotta grow, you gotta grow with your junior agents that become mid level agents that become senior agents, and you gotta you cannot restrict them. You gotta let them have a path for growth. And if you start restricting or holding anybody back, they're either gonna leave you, leave the company, leave the business, and that's not a good for anybody. Right. So. And the, the team that we have today, and hopefully everybody on the team would probably say that, is like, I want them to grow, and I and I'm going to support what they want to do, as long as everybody's you know fair and reasonable, and to to become a senior agent and be there for a long time. And it's been nice. We've got a, a few that have been with us for a long time, and we're seeing them grow and do their thing, and it's neat to see. It really is. How many how many agents are on the team? So we've got two that are just that are I would say newer, under two years, and then we've got three that are, well, we've got one that's even brand new, and then three that are three to six years, and then Steve and I. So that's eight total on? Mm -hmm. Nice. That's a, that's a great size. Yep. So then what it seems like at this point, I mean, most of the production is still coming from, from you, it feels like, but I'm mostly talking with you. So then what's, is that still the case? And a lot of this is, or the, really it's not like that. I'm just. For asking. your perspective versus what's reality yeah. is, I mean, I've. I definitely have the share of it, but the middle tranche agents have really taken off in the last nice. 12 months. And this year is looking you know, very promising. And so do you have a certain goal with building the team then, or what's the... We have, we have revenue goals and things like that. As far as number of goals, we're there. 
We oh. don't, we're not looking to add to the team. And actually meant more for you personally. So you start out making, building the team and, and it's, it's fine. If not, when as people ask, what are your goals here for me? I don't, mm -hmm. we're, you know, we're, we're going, you know, I'm not, there's not a certain goal. So then what my, actually a personal goal for me is just my answer on that would be, and I was always saying this for like four years ago, I want operating leverage. I, at that point, if you talk to me in 2018, I bought probably 30 deals, but I found all of them, closed them all. Then after the deal closes, I, most of them, I'm also the point person. So mm -hmm. it was, I wanted more of a, you know, when I say operating leverage now, like today, I don't, I'm, I'm not the one finding the deals. I'm not underwriting it. Right. I'm, my expertise at this point is being used for raising capital. And then I know the most about construction, not anybody still, but mm -hmm. in like a lot of the legal stuff and then actually running the company. So then, you know, but I want to continue to grow that where then at a certain point, maybe it's just running the company or, or maybe not even that, maybe it's only capital raising. And then you have built out this team where people are able, because here now, if we were to look, I'm probably the, I'm pretty good at underwriting deals, but I'm probably the fourth best person here now, <laughs> you know, like where, you know, or I'm hiring people that are better at that purposely. And then for finding deals, I was always good at that, but you get busy and right. now you have someone who, you know, starts and they have more of a clean slate, so to speak. And that you have a big, you pick up a lot of, you know, leverage in terms of what you can get done. So then with the team, I mean, that would be sort of my goal. It, there's not necessarily a number on that, but it's just, I, I really like doing real estate. I like, I love it. And, but I was thinking like at a certain point, like you, you know, it's, you got to have some sort of system and build like a team. Otherwise you're just, this is just like a really high paying job basically. Mm -hmm. If I don't find the deal, there isn't one to have. Right. So what about you? Is that part of growing the team or? So I mean, I would say in the brokerage experience I've had, the clients want to deal with you, the people you're forming the relationships who they want to deal with. So part of that is going to be watching these agents grow up and as they continue to refine their skills and, and maybe make introductions to clients. But I personally find it a little bit harder to do that just because, you know, when you call, you probably want to talk to me at the moment, right? But one thing I will say, mm -hmm. and we listed two uh, smaller deals with you, I did, I actually did not, I assumed you would not be showing those, Okay. to be honest, where, where when you said you're going to show and you're making calls, I was actually surprised by that. Where at this point I would, I would think, you know, you, you're bringing in the business and then you're going to run the process still. But you know, if it's, if we're cold calling, let's say just new outreach, you have eight people that could call. I just mm -hmm. assumed that probably one of them would. Obviously, if you're calling an existing person you've been working with for 10 years, I'm assuming you're calling that, but doing showings and certain things. And I, I mean, some of these, you know, like how the top residential teams are set up, like mm -hmm. they have like showing agents where they don't, you know, the top people, they, you know, they're, it's, they're bringing in the stuff and someone else on the team shows it. So yeah. that, so I know that might be a surprise to hear that, you know, for the no, first it's time interesting. Now, but, but, and it depends on the deal. You know, if it was a $30 million deal, sure. I would not expect a two-year agent to show up to that, but this is, you know, for Chicago selling a $2 million building. That's not that big a deal necessarily. Sure. So then I thought they could handle the showings or, you know, cause then you could follow up obviously and explain stuff, but mm -hmm. Anyway, so that, so I think you're right, but also depends on the deal. And then at a certain point, you know, as a client, I would feel like you got to assume like, well, these people have been here for five years or whatever. And there's like a system in place. Like I don't, I wouldn't expect someone who would invest in my deal to think like, did you underwrite it or, you know, find it? Like that doesn't matter. I mean, it came in and obviously I approved it and checked everything. 
a lot of that happens in the back office side of things. So underwriting, you know, somebody does that. And I actually still like to pull sales comparables because it keeps me relevant yeah. and fresh and what's happening. So that's easy to hand off, but I actually like to do that piece of it. Underwriting rent comps and things like that. So a lot of the, in the package preparation, then I would do a review of that. You know, and go back and forth before you see what the product is and the proposal. But it's, I mean, it's an interesting perspective, and I didn't, hadn't thought that. I mean, I've always been, and of course, if I can't make a showing, somebody will cover and do that kind of stuff. But it's not, I really haven't handed everything off to somebody else to kind of run the process. So then, but then is that an eventual goal where as these agents, let's say they become the tenure agents or whatever, where you can throw them the listing? Or what's the, it's more just build a team and it's another source of you know revenue so mm -hmm. to speak where it's not always just you need to get a listing now you have a team that you've trained and they're making money and somehow you're sharing in this so the the junior agents that you're building up to be more senior agents are also going to be building the size of their deals so if i handed them something that was a million dollars and they're selling larger deals it might be a little bit of a step backwards for yeah. them too but i think the the ultimate goal is yes to bring it to have agents that are extremely competent that are experienced they're really good then start partnering with them over time in that partnership, you know, I've been in the business for 16 years, right? At some you know, down the road, I and mean, we still have a nice runway ahead, but you know, that would be a transition later, yep. you know, later in the career. But that, and you know, I think that just, I think partnering is probably where I would go with that partnering with them and having them grow and figure out, you know, maybe there's mutual clients and things. And what that could look like is so then they have a pitch that they've scheduled and now you're, you're going with them right. for that. Yep. And I mean, I'm sure you are now, but at that point, it's it's it might be more in like a training aspect, like you're bringing them with on one of your pitches where mm -hmm. is that sort of what you're yeah, thinking exactly. about? Exactly. Because I see some of these, you know, at least these like brokers on TV, you know, they just get driven somewhere in their Range Rover and pop out and, you know, do the pitch and hop back in the car and someone right. else, I think, takes a listing from there. You yep. know, these Ryan Serhan and these guys that in New York, but that, well, nice. I think that's a great goal. And I mean, I'm, I'm sure you've just learned a ton building the team. You know, mm -hmm. and it's been very rewarding as people are, you know, ele elevated in their careers and what they're working on. It's amazing to see people and, you know, the opportunity that I was given that I capitalized on. You know, you, it's nice to provide that same opportunity and allow these people to capitalize on it as well and, and create an amazing career. It, and I think, too, one thing that's just kind of crazy to think about is how you ended up, I don't know, hiring's not the right word, but you hired your mentor. I mean, you brought him back on the team. And yeah. I mean, now, in, you know, you know, works, works for the, the team or you in some regard. So that's, that's, I think it, it, you know, speaks to the relationship back to the thing we mentioned at the beginning is, you know, yeah. you form good relationship people and, and good people. And, and you, you never want to let go of that. And, and we have, we have a really good yin and yang. So the partnership on the mentoring, the junior agents has been really great. Then let's, let's see. I mean, like question wise for a couple of things I wanted to ask, like, so any, any things, maybe not go through the mistake, but just kind of anything that jumps out that you, like you've you've learned the last you know fifteen sixteen years doing brokerage, whether it's from a mistake or just fine tuning your process, that be interesting to hear about. I would say this is actually something that I almost did, which I didn't, but I think it's a good thing to talk about is letting the opportunity pass you by, right? So there's and, and you had hinted at it too, is that there's a time in your life where you can take the risk. And you can, you financially can, can live very cheaply, quite frankly. And, and you're working at a company that's given opportunity and resources. And I've seen a lot of people talk, but not actually walk, yeah. right? They're, they're, they say they're going to do it. And if you let that opportunity pass you by, it's an, 
it's going to, you know, could be a huge mistake. And you know, I guess many times when I almost quit, you know, when the, when the market was tough or, you know, if you don't want to put that extra effort in and, you know, it's passing you by, you can either, you know, go along with it or you can let it go and you might miss something. So you're, you're saying this, you, you like the opportunity you're referring to is a 2007, eight, like sticking with that. That's I'm saying even any, any time, like if, if you're an, an agent and you're thinking about getting into real estate, you got to dedicate it and you, you got to dedicate your time. You got to work hard because the opportunity is right there. Like this market right now that we're in is a phenomenal market. Right. And if you let the market pass you by where you're not working hard and, and doing business and forming relationships, you know, somebody else is and yeah. you're going to stand there and say, what happened? I don't know. That's, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, the reason I asked that, I thought where you were going with that might be like, it's okay to pass on things like letting opportunities. pass. Well, on. that's another that's, one that's, that's, I didn't know that. Yep. I, don't, I don't know about that. But, so that's, uh, that's another piece that when you're growing in your growing your business is you have to look ultimately at your net fee and what you're going to make and if it's worth your time. And that's just more of a dollar and cents thing. And then you also have to look at the client you're working with and if it's a realistic, probable deal. And if you're going to get across the finish line and if they're being, I like to think of myself as a reasonable person. And if I'm working with somebody who's unreasonable, it's going to take a lot of brain damage and it's going to, and it, it probably won't make it to the end, right? The deal right. won't close. Right. So recognizing that at the beginning is a probability brokerage is what we call it. And that's, that would be really hard to do initially, you know, obviously be passing on anything, but as you, you know, advance in your career, then mm -hmm. that's an important component going, what's the likelihood this thing's going to actually transact and right. it's worth your time or not. And that'd be hard to pass on. It's hard to pass on. It's also hard to recognize as a, as a broker. So we see that with agents that are coming in and recognizing whether it's probable or it's not. And we can look at it and say, this doesn't seem that probable or it does. And back to one of the comments about people have it or they don't, they have the ability to recognize probability they just put some steps ahead. No, that's interesting. That, and I've noticed in two, just sort of this overall critical thinking, mm -hmm. this is really hard to teach. And I, that's another, maybe you got it or you don't think, but that's because you can do so much training, but there's so many just judgment calls or I know we explained that this is do this, but then this other thing happened. So we need to change now. And that's, that's really hard to teach. And as you just have more people I interact with, like I realize that. Yep. So. Yeah, this world's filled with a lot of gray area, right? It's not all black and white. So, so right. Thinking like, outside yeah. the box or things, there's not going to be a perfect answer for everything. I just saw a Elon, a, like a Instagram reel or something. And Elon Musk was talking and he was like, you know what's interesting? Like most engineers, they'll, they'll spend time fixing something, getting it perfect that you don't even need. And really they need to think, because you're taught there's a problem, you need to fix it in school. Especially if you're an engineer, yep. I guess I'm not one. So he said, what's really tough to do is you go, well, actually, we don't even need that part. We could just do the whole thing differently. And he's like, nobody does that. Yep. So and I just that that was interesting because that's, you know, not something you learn in school. And obviously, you know, he's very creative and done done all right. So absolutely. And he said something that it really stuck with me, too. And it said, you're living the life you're living is things you is because of things you did three to five years ago. That's interesting. Which is, I'm like, and then, then you can flip it the other way and say, what you're doing today is going to shape three to five years in the future. That's, and I like that. I, know, I heard for one more, this, this was a not from him, but someone, just to put things in perspective, let's say you're having a bad day. They were like, just have, let's say, 25-year-old Kyle explain, have, explain to 25-year-old Kyle what's bugging you today. And, it, you know, it's not, you're going to be like, wow, that's a good problem to have, you know, that I got 
whatever, right. you know, I'm getting, I'm having problems on my $30 million deal. Like I never would have imagined to even have one, you know, at that point, you know, or whatever the problem would be at that point. So, well, nice. Anything you would have done maybe differently than now kind of looking back, I think I asked something similar about what might, uh, I think helped with you know, some of the success, but what about anything maybe looking back you would have done differently? Or if let's say for a new broker starting out, I guess there's two questions now. So anything you would, would have done differently looking back? I mean, I think that every day I'm realize I'm improving on things. So the la- the, it could be a laundry list of items. You know, I th- one thing that I really enjoyed is doing larger deals. And I think the, the sooner you start to push yourself into larger deals, the you know, quicker you'll have that success, obviously. But I think that I'd like to do larger deals. And I'm not talking about institutional level, but you know, the 500 to million to $2 million deals, if you can start transitioning yourself up right. a little sooner. And part of that has to do with where you're prospecting and, and what you're focusing on and things like that. And if you're, if you're thinking about doing larger deals too, I would say, don't be afraid to partner up with somebody who's already got that experience That's instead of trying to do it yourself. So then, right, if in 2012, you know, if you're selling one and two and $3 million deals, now you're doing way bigger. There wasn't that much of a difference almost which is like hard to wrap your head around at that point where Mm -hmm. you're this is what i'm doing and but and the same things happen with me it's you know everybody says it's it's the same amount of work to do like a big deal and a smaller one and Mm -hmm. it's it's still a different amount of work but it's not that different and it's the same steps it's just the numbers and everything are a little it's an extra zero more scary or your earnest money is a million dollars instead of a hundred grand or something and that you know so then that's that's something i realized too and my answer on that i would have I should have figured out a way to get an like an employee this kind of to help with this everything I was doing earlier. You know, a lot of the deals we did, we weren't we weren't charging an acquisition fee or asset management fee. We were just we we're just getting a percent of the profits along the way. So it's great if you're gonna own long term, but we we weren't getting any fee income. So mm-hmm. then you use the distributions to kind of pay for like your own bills or whatever. And then I I wish I would have and we weren't selling a lot of deals, so then I like because now seeing the amount of leverage I have, like this at this point where I said I want operating leverage, I'm getting done as a group like more in a day than I used to get done in a week. Mm-hmm. And that's and so now seeing that, it's like, geez, if you would have done that in 2013, like what would you have gotten done? So you've seen exponential growth and difference by hiring and surrounding yourself with people that are... And it's really paid off because now we're doing deals that I would have never had the time to find right. and close. And we're, you know, we're buying three deals right now and like I'm... I spend time on the front end, but then to get it to closing, like I said, I'm mostly working on raising the debt equity right. and legal pieces. But then all I would have been bogged down doing due diligence on the first deal and missed the next two. I mean, really, it's how it would have gone. And more or less, we were just buying one deal at a time for the most part for like a 10-year period. What do you think kept you from doing that, from growing or, I, or hiring? Well, the money for one, because yeah. if we weren't we weren't charging those fees, but now knowing what I know now, it would have been... It would actually pay it off to be like, all right, I'll take a smaller percent and they're like, we'll just charge a, a fee on this or mm-hmm. let's sell a deal so we can. The thing is, I don't, when I'm doing these deals, I'm not really, I'm just thinking about the deal and the investor. So then I wouldn't, what I was going to say is that we should have sold, then I would have had money for this, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't work like that. Like I would want the deal to go well and if my partner wants to keep it, so then we're keeping it. Right. So then I don't, but for me personally, there was some way we could have had a liquidity event. And then I could have hired two people. Things would have, from there, grown faster. Just didn't didn't work out. And then, two, my you know, it was at the time with the partners that I had, 
they were we were real happy just doing what we were doing and kind of just keeping that you know train on the tracks and not where his dad was the investor and just kind of managing that amount of money Mm -hmm. wasn't wasn't thinking okay let's do this and then we'll get five more right now or do something so different so just a mindset shift too once i had to reset in 2019 when brian passed away Mm -hmm. so well nice then what let's see as a buyer and i know i had asked this on another podcast but like what would be something that either you like to see or a way like a buyer can set themselves apart like if they're trying to get a listing let's say it's like super competitive like what can they i mean i think that the biggest certainty of close for me is 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 right up there along with price right and sometimes the price is a little bit lower if there's a higher certainty of close and you know there's things in the offer that you can do and and proof of funds and and talking to lender relationships and things like that but i think looking at a track record and having experience closing the transactions is probably number one and then references so somebody talking to somebody that so if you're talk, if let's just say you want to buy a deal from me and you say talk to this other broker we just did these transactions with i think that that goes a long way and and vouching for somebody earnest money non-refundable earnest money is not as common here but i know in a lot of the other smile states markets there it's common it's required Yep. So that nice. That makes a lot of sense. And I think too, and even for a while, that didn't make sense to me actually, where I would say, why would anyone take a lower price to deal with someone who's more experienced or or whatnot? But because I wasn't like, I really, like, I don't retrade deals unless there's really something that basically was not what we were told. Like Mm -hmm. if you say the roof's brand new and we go to it and then it's not new. Okay. Well then that, that would make sense to then say like, all right, well, I would like a new roof because that's what I was assuming. Mm -hmm. But so I never understood that. But now as I've just done more deals and sold to other people, and then you go this one price that you locked in with this person, that might not be where you're closing at. And then, or if they're new, they can't close it. I mean, one of the deals we're buying in Phoenix, the prior buyer was trying to do a Freddie Mac loan on a half empty building. We already know it's not possible. (laughs) So then you go, okay, well, nice try with that. I don't know. I'm surprised no one in that transaction knew that you couldn't do that. Or you, you can, but they size to a certain debt cover that on a half empty building, you're going to get like no proceeds. Right. So then, because they're just going on actual, depending on if you can get a waiver or not, T3 or T1, T2 mm-hmm. revenue. This mm-hmm. is the trailing month number, the way I'm saying that. But that's, so I never actually really understood that actually till I was also a seller, which is pretty recently, where then you go, okay, that's actually, this number this might not, this isn't, so we're going to close or maybe they can't close it. So it's not, it's not like a real thing. Like, right. so get that out of your head almost like this group might be higher, but they're not, they're not doing what you're saying. We're providing that certainty. You might not get across the finish line. We've gotten a lot of offers from groups that are from out of state and you really got to do a lot of due diligence on their, where their equity is coming from and who the lender relationships are. And we've found, I mean, from anywhere from they're very real and it's going to happen to they've forged a, a, a bank statement. Wow. That, you know, surprising they're even sending it out because you can tell no. you know, a few different things. Wow. Like a month, like a, the statement ended halfway through the month or like an odd number. You know, it, that's, that's really interesting. What have you guys had many deals where it's like someone who is doing a, where there's a bunch of different GP sponsor groups in it? I'm not. Okay. Cause especially, or, you know, like a lot of the, you know, these high growth markets, that's, those are like, it's like a, there's quite a few buyers where it's, it's like that, where they're syndicating like from, let's say online, mm-hmm. but then they're also like combining GP groups where to get to the net worth required and experience they're putting together, it's like 10 GPs in it. Wow. Which to me, it's like, there's who's in charge of that then, which I haven't, I'm, they close and it, it's working out, but I, that, that I always wonder what do, 
because we like our pitch is pretty succinct like i'm the decision maker or me and one other person would be depending on the deal and then here's where our money's coming from mm -hmm. like a simple answer mm -hmm. and then i mean they can win it on you just get a few clothes like that and then you can say okay we have 10 people in the sponsor group but we always have closed on time. There, there, there must be a but, but I'm just not sure what. So, and what size deals are these that they're doing? I mean, I'm seeing them do things from five million to a hundred million. Yeah, they're they're in some big stuff. I mean, it's, but I think it's they. You know, you close a few like that, and now they have a track record, and people stop caring how many, where the money's coming from, or what's in the sponsor group. If you can say we've done twelve of these or mm -hmm. twenty, you know, where I think that then people are. I was just curious because then right, if it's someone from out of town and there's. I don't know, going to syndicate it online or something like that's, you know, a tougher buyer than someone who's local and just says, it's my money. I'm ready to go. And whoever the buyers are, if you can, the important piece is to just understand, get the truth up front. So if you know, if you're going down a path and it's going to be a hairy path, that seller needs to know and manage their expectations as to what it is. And here are the pros and here are the cons. The pro, I'm guessing that the multiple GPs, or let's just say it's somebody who's out raising money should pay more. And does the yeah. seller want to take the risk? of that, which they may be fine doing and letting it play out, or they want to take the certainty of close. And that's going to be all dependent on the seller. Exactly. Because if the seller doesn't have any sort of time crunch, right. sure, let's take more money and see how this plays out. If they flake, fine, I'll just try selling it again. I'm not in a rush. Mm -hmm. Where if, but if you, you know, you're trying to close out your fund or you're trying to do a 1031, right, then that, that's what I assume you mean by that. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, exactly. Is there anything that you you've just noticed then, not necessarily just with a, a that purchase process question, but I mean, you've done so many deals, you've met so many owners and sellers, like what jumps out to you is like, these are the things that successful owners, investors, like what are, what are they doing? I would say that it's part of what you just said before about what maybe a successful broker is, is attention to detail. And to go on even further is knowing a market, learning a market and spending time there and really understanding it, not just Coming yeah. in the market, oh, let's just buy it because we can. We have money, and we can buy. Right? You really digest and analyze the market and figure out what works and what indicators you're looking for. I've seen it in you. I've seen it in a couple other, you know, clients that have gone to other markets as well. Right. Well, we're not trying to be in 20 markets. I'm. I'm trying to basically be in just one more. Right. And that, and because there's so much real, like, I feel like the money and <clears throat> I feel like the money in real estate as a as an owner as a buyer is really made in really like diving deep into a certain market mm -hmm. and really understanding it. And it's really like, cause it's made on the margins where like on some of the deals that I bought and I knew the rents are below market. It's like, I know they're below market cause I, I really understand it, but like two blocks away, the rents are what the same as this really low one that I understand is low. But if you're buying that from Florida or somewhere else, you don't, you're not going to understand that. But for me, I really get it where it's like, no, at this location, this should be, X instead of Y, right. which you're not going to understand if you're in like 10 markets, unless you have a giant team and there's, you know, 30 people that are covering it. So I've, cause I, people have asked that, like, what are you doing for your, your, well, I'm in Phoenix now too. And what's next? Like Texas, Florida, Vegas, like what's the next move? And it's like, the answer is we want to go really deep in Phoenix and just get it to where it's like what we have in Chicago, where we really, we understand every little nuance. And mm -hmm. when something's a hundred dollars off, we realize that not where we're just don't understand what's going on. Right. So, you scale there and you're going to have, you're going to capitalize on inefficiencies of the market like you can do here. And then that's on all fronts where even just what, you know, we know what everything, things are starting to really cost now and, you know, what's a laundry install and what's, you know, cause it's different in different places where it's, some things are 
the same there cost-wise, but some are quite a bit cheaper. Mm -hmm. And some things are more, actually. It's just interesting. So with that, that's something I say all the time where we're trying to go, like, you know, deep into a market, not, like, wide. That's, that's, I really see that because the people, right, that I'm, you know, I know what clients you're talking about. They've done really well because they, like, grew up and just lived in that neighborhood forever. I mean, they're some of these people, like the Glasscots you're talking about, they've been in Lincoln Park for, like, 50 years. Like, they, they know every building. Mm -hmm. Like, that's where the money's made. Yep understanding how properties are well, it's kind of going off what you said before too you know understanding how they they operate you know having a realistic perspective on, on things yep and believing in what you're doing and having it grounded upon real information that's a good one that's why again going deep in a market makes the most sense because at this point especially in let's say chicago i mean we're we look at stuff to buy and it's i look at it and i'm like i have six buildings exactly like this one i would know like i would know i'll i know all the costs already i don't like the mm -hmm. broker book i look at the interior basically i don't need any info out of it because i already know how to look up the taxes on my own or what all these things will cost you know obviously we'll look at the utilities and other things but not a lot of times i'll go well i'm paying a different number at these other buildings so i'll just use that mm -hmm. you know either this is low or high or whatever so how long does it take you to underwrite a property in a uh, market you know obviously in an hour probably yeah. depending where we're underwriting some bigger deals now you know 150 units or whatever but we we have the model how we load in the information it's fast where we use this thing called red iq and it scrubs all the data and organizes it in the categories we use we can you can upload any pdf and then it, it uses ai to match up the categories and dollar amounts and wow. clean the t12 or p yeah p so it used to on a larger deal it used to take way longer, but one of the one of the people we added to the team revamped the model completely. Where we don't we're not using what I made at all at this point. So back in the day when we're buying eight units, mm -hmm. I mean I don't even know if it took an hour; it wouldn't take very long. But now we can upload and just run through these larger deals pretty fast. And then most of the time is actually spent on rent comps, actually like loading up, booting up the deal, and then putting in our expense assumptions. That's that goes quickly, and then it's because a lot of times I'm asking like, where, how's it going, or where are we at with it? And mm -hmm. usually the answer is like, I'm still working on the rent comps. So because that's where, again, the money's really made. And we started doing some interesting stuff where we're running linear regressions of comps, where we're seeing mm -hmm. like we're mapping out on a scatter plot all the different comps and seeing where it fits and where it sits compared to the comps, like actually in a vis visualization. Wow. Again, not something I knew how to do. So that's just again. Where now we have way better process and information and just better everything having having this operating leverage and then too we've paid it we've got, got a lot of different software subscriptions and things now mm -hmm. we're pulling a lot of like those comps a lot of times are coming out of a yardy that we signed up for so i was in i was in dallas looking at a deal and this broker he knew what every property was running for per foot like just the real quick and i was like where is this info coming from even like i know it's impressive you know it but like where did it even how do you know this info and it's all in yardy you know well cool well, let's wrap it up there I okay mean, great great job kyle thank you this is awesome i appreciate it, it a good, good discussion thanks for coming on if how can listeners viewers get in touch with you if they want to reach out sure so we have a website stengelgroup.com or off of marcusandmillichap.com and if you search for agents if you put my name in there you'll find me great all right well thanks again until next time everyone Thanks for watching and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks for joining us on the Rise and Invest podcast. Please be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube or wherever you enjoy your podcasts. If you'd like to dive even deeper into real estate investing, check out our company's website, riseinvest.com, where we have numerous free resources and information that can help both active and passive real estate investors. 
Our 100 plus page passive investing guidebook, our trends report, and our blog are all available on our website. If you are an accredited investor, you can get started today as a passive investor in our multifamily investment opportunities by hitting the invest now button on our website. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Drew Brenneman and guests as of the date of recording and do not purport to reflect the views or opinions of Rise Invest Holdings LLC and its subsidiaries. The views and opinions are provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon or deemed as investment or tax advice or an offer to buy or sell securities. And the speaker cannot be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.